Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Iman Ubu. Iman Ubu is a Moroccan-American entrepreneur, a former beauty queen, and a published scientist on a mission to change the women's media landscape. Through her diverse experience with business, pageantry, and STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, Iman Ubu noticed gender disparities in the workforce and an omnipresent bias across printed and digital media. She founded Sway, S-W-A-A-Y.com, an all-in-one publishing platform for women to champion the voices of female change makers through the power of storytelling. With Sounds True, Iman Abu is releasing a new book. It's called The Glass Ledge, How to Break Through Self-Sabotage, Embrace Your Power, and Create Your Success. Iman Abu found herself internalizing many of the limiting beliefs that women often encounter when we're in leadership roles in business, that power is really a masculine force, that we need to be likable and we have to please people if we wanna be successful, that competition for women is just not healthy and more. Iman investigates each one of these beliefs and more in a journey both to free herself and also to free other women business leaders so that we can become unstoppable forces of leading for good. Here's a brave, soul-searching business leader, Iman Ubu. Iman, I know you were born and raised in Morocco and that you came to the United States when you were 15. Can you tell us a little bit from the age of 15, coming to the U.S., the journey you've been on that led to the writing of The Glass Ledge? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was born and raised in Morocco until the age of 15 years old when my family decided to move to Colorado in the pursuit of the American dream. I, at that point, I had never really visited the U.S. nor spoken English. I wasn't at all familiar with the culture um, or anything for that matter. All I have known at that point was, you know, growing up in Morocco. And so, as you can imagine, it was a pretty tough transition for me, especially as a teenager who had to make peace with leaving life as I knew it behind and moving into a country where I felt like I didn't really belong. 
Uh, and it wasn't actually long after that move and that I began struggling with depression. Um, and at the time, I didn't really know much about mental health. I, I didn't understand that I was going through depression. And what made things worse is that I also didn't have many people to talk to about it. Um, you know, I was lucky that my aunt went through a similar transition when she was a bit older. I think she was 20 years old at the time. So she was one of the only people that helped me a little bit go through that transition. But it was really tough on me. And that's actually where I started falling in love with the idea of journaling and writing and I was I gravitated a lot towards poetry for some reason but it felt like that's the only outlet I had to really kind of purge all those feelings that I was feeling inside all that confusion that I couldn't communicate and really put it to paper to almost kind of drain my brain from everything I was going through um, and so I was forced to adapt into a new lifestyle, a new culture. I had to learn a completely new language and a new way of learning as well. Because going to uh, schools in Morocco and you know being under the European educational system, it's completely different from um, education here in the U.S. So I had to learn how to do a lot of things differently, even how to uh, you know add and subtract. It's it's different ways of, of doing math here than it is back there. So a lot of learning. Um, how to do things from scratch and unlearning how how I used to do things before. And so also along with depression in high school, I started developing insecurities around my self-image and most importantly, shame for not speaking perfect English, which I think instilled in me what I call the immigrant mentality in my work ethic. I had to work twice as hard to stand out in a worthy and positive light. Um, Eventually, I finished high school, went to uh, college uh, to study biochemistry and molecular biology. You know, as a child, I had always dreamt of potentially curing cancer or having some kind of uh, impact like that in the world. So automatically, um, you know, I thought, okay, becoming a doctor is a good path for my career. So I went to school for that specifically. I went on to do medical missions around the world as well, um, including in South Sudan, in Morocco, Ecuador, Kenya, and then went on to graduate school for bioengineering before I got my first job as a cancer research scientist, um, specifically focused on melanoma and carcinoma. Um, and then from there on, I moved to New York and decided to explore the other side of healthcare, which is more around communications, um, you know, investor relations, public relations. And simultaneously, I decided to follow my mom's advice and participate in beauty pageants, which she thought was a great outlet for me to not only find a new hobby, but also explore my quote unquote feminine side, which she thought I wasn't doing enough of, um, and which was a really interesting experience for me because growing up as a tomboy, pageantry was never really in my you know thoughts at all. But going through that process, and I'm sure we'll talk about it um, as well, it has completely changed me in my perspective and had really helped me figure out myself, who I was, who I wasn't, uh, what I wanted to do, uh, what was my purpose. And that's what started kind of pushing me towards a different career path. Um, shortly after winning the title of Miss New York United States in 2015, I decided to leave my job and start a podcast, which ultimately turned to be 
a publishing platform brand that I call now Sway.com. And um, that's really where I'm at today. And then, of course, the book came shortly after that. Uh, but that's basically in, you know, long story long, that's the path I took since uh, my parents decided to move us from Morocco to the United States. And tell me a little bit about your discovery of the glass ledge. I think many of us, you know, of course, have heard of the glass ceiling, this invisible upper barrier that prevents women and other people who aren't white men from rising to the highest levels of achievement. But now how, what's the glass ledge and how does it relate to the glass ceiling? Yeah. Well, so the glass ledge really represents the self-imposed glass ceilings. We, especially as women, subconsciously set for ourselves and end up having the most impact on us. For, for me, the road to shattering glass ceilings, which I think I've been conditioned to do ever since you know my move here as a teenager, left me teetering on the edge of my own personal glass ledge as I fell victim to internalized depression and self-sabotage. Um, and I specifically came into discovering this concept after my company, Sway, in 2018, suffered a major setback due to uh, the loss of a life-changing investment. And at the time, my life was completely flipped upside down as I was forced to basically reprioritize my strategy for recovering from, from this failure, as I called it back then. I had officially hit rock bottom. I was in a lot of debt. I was broke. I was unemployed. And I was battling severe anxiety disorder. And this is Shortly after I thought I had, you know, made it and that I had finally found my purpose and that everything was going forward in the right way and that I'm supposed to be unlocking more of my potential as opposed to kind of going backwards and failing again and hitting rock bottom and starting from scratch and losing my company and being lost into what do I what I want to do. Um, so at the time, I didn't really know what to do and how to move forward. Uh, it's not like losing a job where you just go and apply for another job. I had put all of my financial resources, emotional resources into building that company. And then overnight, our path was completely you know, flipped. So diving deeper into a state of reflection, my initial instinct was to blame society and the external circumstances I had to go through as a female founder, which I was very vocal about, you know, everything from sexism to sexual harassment, pageant bias, lack of support and resources. Um, you know, this is not anything new to many female entrepreneurs. But while reflecting on these shortcomings and also journaling my thoughts, which I'm very big on, my perspective began to shift a little bit from, yeah, things should be different and it's not fair. Um, and I should be, you know, I should be treated better. I have, I'm very capable, I'm as capable as my other male counterparts. Why am I not getting the right funding or the right resources or the right support to what can I do differently for myself right now to change my life, change my circumstances and potentially pay it forward. And I realized that in order for me to get back on my feet and fight for my business and for the life that inspires me, I would have to first turn uh, inwardly to dismantle the, the limiting belief system and eliminate the self-defeating behaviors that have been holding me back. And it took a lot of, I would say, uh, self-work and courage to admit to myself that I do have responsibility in the way things panned out and that I, do, I should be taking accountability for 
where I'm at and that I'm the only one who can actually turn that around. It's not investors who invested in me or the ones who didn't invest in me. It's not my team. It's not my boyfriend. It's not my family. Uh, it's not society that's going to come and save me. It's I have to get back up and really turn things around for myself and stop adopting strategies that are holding me back. Also, I realized I had internalized a lot of that rejection and um, outside valid, outside expectations. That became my narrative and that became my truth. I almost started seeing myself under the light of, yeah, maybe after all, I'm just a beauty queen with a PowerPoint and a dream. Maybe they are right. Maybe, maybe I am just, you know, too pretty to be a CEO or whatever those comments were that I was met with every time I went out there to continue growing my business, I started kind of subconsciously adopting them as my own truth and believing it without really realizing it. Um, and so that's kind of where I started discovering the, the, the concept of, of the glass ledge being like most women, including myself, are conditioned to constantly be out there chasing, uh, shattering glass ceilings and chasing kind of outside uh, validation and whatnot, as opposed to really looking inwards and truly getting to know who we are at the core and acting from a, from a place of alignment and self-assurance, as opposed to panic and fear, um, and really trying to do what, what society is expecting out of us. Now, it's interesting, throughout the glass ledge, you point to many of the inequities and you offer lots of metrics way beyond the pay gap that point to how women founders and women in business are not given the same opportunity. And yet, you seem to point to the place of power being the inner work we're doing while we're simultaneously changing the culture. And I wonder if you can talk about that, that combination of working internally and externally at the same time, what that's like for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I feel like my the, what I do in my work and what I chose to kind of build my business in is a, is a true testimony of that is in the sense that I... I'm a big advocate of raising awareness around the many external barriers that women face, whether it's a pay gap, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, just maternity policies in the workplace, um, being able to access funding and resources and mentorship, uh, you know, th that's all out there now. And I think more and more women are speaking up on it, and which is amazing because I don't think it's been as vocal, um, you know, prior to probably, you know, 2016, many women were kind of holding back from speaking their truth and what they're going through in real time. And I think the more we elevate those voices, the better. However, I think it's very important to be mindful, not to kind of be stuck in that echo chamber when now being vocal about those external barriers become an adoption of a victimhood mindset because that can happen. And that, that happened to me where I felt like I'm constantly fighting and I became angry and defensive and just um, blameful. And, and then slowly but surely I, I was stuck in this mindset that I created for myself where this kind of activism to raise awareness around women's empowerment and women's issues um, became more obsessed with what we can do than what we can do. And then ultimately my own kind of self-perspective was defined 
by those gender related uh, adversities and wounds. Um, and that I was kind of like this warrior outside from the outside, but then also from the inside. All I was thinking waking up in the morning is I'm going to go fight, fight, fight. But with the book, what I really advocate for is that let's leave behind that era where we're constantly fighting to bring down external barriers and let's expand our self-perspective so that we can collectively achieve that freedom for ourselves and then for our collective demographic. Um, and, and it's important to check in with ourselves on different themes that I talk about in the book, whether it's your relationship with power or how do you let likability affect how you show up every day at work or in your personal life? What does authenticity mean and how does it kind of, you know, uh, differ from your adapting self? Um, what does your presentation and appearance look like? Do you show up as the leader you want or are you letting the outside world dictate how you should show up and what your appearance and presentation should be? Um, similarly, confidence and conflict. Are you comfortable with conflict? How do you handle emotions? Do you let them control you or do you, do you have a way of approaching your triggers? Do you know what your triggers are? And I think all of these questions, we don't stop often to ask ourselves these because it's easier to ignore it than actually sitting down and doing the self-work needed to really show up with that self-assurance and that unshakable conviction in your values and your mission in life. Um, so yes, the book is, is, is mindful to acknowledge those you know, statistics and research and external barriers we all are aware of, but we don't want to get too caught up in that because that's that's actually going to continue derailing us as opposed to helping us create change. The real change is created internally first before you can pay it forward externally. Now, help me understand what happened with your company, Sway. You start the glass ledge by writing about this experience of having this investor pull out in 2018 and the difficulty you were in. But here we are with the publication of your new book and Sway uh, seems to be going strong. What happened? Yes. Well, I think I made a decision at that point that I would never put myself in a situation again where, where the success of my company, my life and the success of my life mission is dependent on um, someone else or some other factors that can overnight pull out and then poof, everything is gone, you know? And I think that was a hard lesson in business too, in the sense that, with the startup world, a lot of, uh, especially new founders, and I was, and you know, this is my first company technically, so I was still a new founder, really understanding and navigating the world of not only launching a brand and a business, but also raising the resources for it. And I was under the impression that I could continually raise funding, and it's going to keep coming until I need, until you know, I, I don't need it anymore. But the reality is you don't raise funding to survive. You don't raise funding to keep a company afloat. You raise funding to scale a proof of concept that is already hopefully by that point is sustainable and generates re enough revenue to continue surviving on its own with or without funding. And I wasn't in that position. I was in a very vulnerable position in the sense that if we don't raise funding, then the company shuts down because I didn't at the point realize that I didn't have a substantial revenue stream set in place. I had a great vision. I had a great platform. I had a great community. And, but I never really stopped and validated the business model behind all of that. Um, 
And so that was a very hard lesson to learn as, as a business person is that don't put yourself in a position where you're vulnerable to a point where if funding doesn't come through, then you shut down overnight. And that's what a lot of even most successful startups who have raised multi-millions um, in funding are there. They continue to be in those positions. And I see those, you know, being talked about every day in, in the media as you some company just raised 150 million and then a few months later they shut down because they couldn't raise more. Um, so since I went through it at a much lower scale, thankfully, I was able to still continue run the company as a one woman show because I didn't have the means to hire a bigger team at the time. If anything, I had to lay off my team. So instead of me kind of going and shutting down a company and telling investors, sorry, I tried and it's not working out, I took a step back and, and focused mostly on, like I said, self-work as opposed to business work, because I feel like my, my initial instinct was, all right, let's talk about, let's go back to the drawing board and talk about business revenue and all that. But I just felt like I wasn't in a good place mentally, emotionally, and psychologically to be able to focus on that unless I have, I, I unlearn a lot of the things I saw myself as. And so for that summer, the, 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 the three months um, after that happened, I really focused on taking a step back, journaling. I went through therapy. Um, I understood what I did wrong and why I wasn't confident enough in those business meetings and those investor meetings to pull through the funding we needed. I explored my relationship with power because I just realized I was so uncomfortable and when I, I could sense a power imbalance in the room. I, I, I basically couldn't be a successful CEO unless I, I went through that 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 uh those few months of self-work and after that i was able to finally focus on revenue and then a few months later the company was up and running again we were generating revenue uh we were profitable because of course we cut down i cut down on a lot of expenses and what i was able to be scrappy and then i continuously kind of put the strategies in place to grow in a sustainable way without focusing on funding mm -hmm. Instead of chasing investors, I started pouring myself into the community I was building, understanding our users, understanding the contributors that use Sway as a platform to elevate their voices. What are their pain points? How can I show up better for you? What features would you want on the platform? What would you pay for? What would you not pay for? What kind of support can we lend you? That kind of work I didn't do because I was too busy chasing investors. And it's true when you're fundraising, it's a full-time job. You can't be completely immersed in your business while also fundraising. So I had to pick one or the other. And early on in my, in my brand launch and when I launched a business, I picked going down the investor route and that's what my biggest focus was. And I didn't focus enough on the value I as a CEO and what my company brought to the table. And so that's exactly what I focused on after, you know, but the whole incident in 2018. And in hindsight, it was the best thing that's ever happened to me because it forced me to reevaluate how I was showing up and what strategies I was adopting that weren't working and how to essentially create a sustainable business that can last much longer than the startup culture. For those of us who are hearing about Sway, S-W-A-A-Y.com for the first time. Can you, can you share a brief overview of what happens at Sway.com? 
Yeah, sure. So Sway.com is a self-publishing platform that helps elevate underrepresented voices by helping um, with content sharing, helping our contributors or what we call members tell their stories better um, and really share their message. So not only do we provide an outlet and a distribution channel, but also we have an editorial support system that members can access when they be, when they join the platform. So we have content strategists that meet with our members on a regular basis. Um, they have unlimited uh, amount of time to request a meeting or one-on-one coaching session with content strategists, editors, even ghostwriter services for people who don't have time to create the content that they need to continuously grow their brand. So unlike a medium, for example, or LinkedIn publishing, where you basically just have the outlet, we also provide the content creation and editorial support that I think many creators are struggling with. And, and so that's, that's the overview. Mm-hmm. Now, Iman, for someone who in their life right now is needing a rebirth of some kind, they're in the dark part of the cycle. They haven't come out yet. What would you recommend to help them have the kind of resilience that you've had with Sway? Yeah, and that's a good question. Um, and I think especially following the pandemic, and I think a lot of people have gone through that phase and maybe some some people are still going through it uh and i will say myself i also went through it again during a pandemic just because i didn't know how to deal with uncertainty but i think the first thing to remember is um to surrender to the to the events that are that are you know taking place and i know the our immediate instinct usually when you're going through a, a rough patch is to fight it is to right away especially with me i'm I'm a Virgo. I like to say I'm, I like to be in control of, of, of my life and, and circumstances and I don't like uncertainty. So right away, we start kind of fighting where we are and want to find immediate solutions to, to change things around us. And that's pretty normal. But I think the best thing you could do is take a step back and reevaluate where you are and why you are in this situation in an objective way, which I know is hard to do. But that would probably give you the most insights into what is needed to happen or what can you do or, you know, to change your circumstances. Um, So for me, for example, in 2018 and even in 2020, I took a step back and I did a lot. I I promised to fill my days with more, um, I would say, spiritual and, you know, uh, thoughtful activities as opposed to picking up calls and calling you know, more investors or calling a business advisor. And it, it's not kind of practical business um, activities that I that I took on, but I, I, I really wanted to talk more about what what kind of role did I play in, in those circumstances and how can I now take control over not making the same mistakes and switching and, and changing my path for the better. So like I said, I think surrendering might be a counterintuitive approach to changing your circumstances when you're going through a rough patch, but it has been the most helpful, I would say, drastic uh, way for me to, to really change my situation. Mm-hmm. And just to pick up on a thread you said during the pandemic mm-hmm. when all of us, and I think during this time mm-hmm. right now in our collective human civilization, we're faced with so much uncertainty, uncertainty about uh, the climate crisis we're in, political instability, so many things. How did surrendering help you if it did 
with facing uncertainty? Or how have you become more, to use Pema Chodron's phrase, comfortable with uncertainty? Yeah, I think with with the uncertainty, what what is the 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 biggest problem with that is that we put pressure on ourselves to have it figured out, and that's really I think where the biggest problem with dealing with uncertainty is that a lot of us are conditioned to always be doing something. We're always um, planning. We're always, um, you know, calling people at making plans. Do you, we always want to feel busy and productive, but sometimes it's actually unproductive to just kind of be throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks with surrendering. I feel that it helps you kind of be more creative and focus on the things that are going to be actually uh, fruitful and, and life-changing as opposed to just, you know, filling your mind and your schedule with just things to do to feel like you're doing something about your situation. Um, and that's what it did for me is that I was able to also learn how to not put the wrong pressure on myself and how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think the sooner we make peace with that, the better the better we can handle failures, the better we handle things that come at us that we weren't prepared for. And I, when you learn that process, and again, I think that process takes time and your transformation takes time. But I think the more you put yourself in, a, in, in practice to know how to be uncomfortable and be okay with it, the more you'll be accepting to things that come into your life that you can't control. Nobody could control the pandemic, right? I mean, if you also got laid off, you couldn't control that. A lot of things, we learned that a lot of things were outside of our control and we have two choices. We either dwell on it and let that affect us or we take a step back and dive into a deeper state of reflection and think productively and also being okay with taking your time with it. Not every change has to happen overnight. And that's something I personally struggle with because I like things to happen almost like, you know, every month. For me, I was kind of brought up in this, especially after we moved here from the US. I had that, like I said early on in our interview, I had this immigrant mentality where I constantly need to be doing something. I can't just sit back and reflect. I need to be achieving more. I need to add more lines to my resume. I need to raise more money. I need to make more money. I need to write more books. I need to meet more people. And living in New York also doesn't help with that mentality because you're comparing yourself to everybody else's schedule, to everybody else on social media posting about all the amazing things that they're doing, all the features they've been getting on the press, all the books they've written. There's a constant race you put yourself in and you subconsciously don't realize that now you're in this hamster wheel that's never going to end. And so it's very important to take a step back and, and, and live your life according to your, like what, who you are at the core, not what people expect out of you, not by comparison to what others are doing. Make sure that what you're filling your schedule with, the, the strategies you're adopting and the things that you want to do are because they're aligned with who your authentic self is, as opposed to what you think you should be doing to keep up with the Jonases. <laughs> Hey, Insights at the Edge listeners, I have some great news for you. Season two of the Michael Singer podcast is now available. 
In these free sessions, you're invited to join the best-selling author of The Untethered Soul and the new follow-up book, Living Untethered, as he shows us how to free ourselves from the limitations of what he calls the voice in our head and return to the depth and richness of our natural selves. You can learn more at michaelsingerpodcast.com. That's michaelsingerpodcast.com. Now, I wanted to just uh, track back for a moment, because you kind of said this in passing, in that when you were seeking funding for Sway and you were talking to various investors, an investor actually said to you, do you think you might be too pretty to be a CEO? Did that actually happen? Oh, yes, that definitely happened. And it, it happened. there were other comments, too, along those lines where... I also met with a marketing agency and, you know, at the time I'm like, okay, I want maybe a marketing to hire a marketing agency to handle sway social media and marketing campaigns. And then the, the head of the agency said, you know, I think instead of creating a whole new social channel for sway, why don't you just use your personal brand and your personal channels to market sway? Because people love to see a pretty face talk. And I, my boyfriend was with me at the time and we both looked at each other and I was hoping that it would be like, I'm just kidding. You know, that was totally a joke, but they were completely dead serious. And there was a room full of young men. These, you know, our men who created elite daily men who basically were kind of geniuses behind the biggest marketing campaigns and the biggest viral media brands. So I thought I was in the right room being able to partner with genius minds like that to be able to take my brand to the next level. But again, I found myself in a situation where the focus of the talk was more about my physical appearance um, and quote unquote, my pretty face, as opposed to the business I'm building, as opposed to the mission I'm, I'm on. It, it was very discouraging to hear both investors and, you know, business people, you know, marketing people uh, defer to that every time I would walk into a room to pitch a business idea or a partnership. I, and again, I, I can't help but wonder if it's because I have a beauty pageant past where automatically people, you know, associate me with kind of a beauty business or you, that, that's the that's the conversation where I'm just another, you know, pretty face showing up. Or if it's just really how other even how other women um, are facing these kind of discriminatory comments. Um, I, I don't know where that all came from, but I know that it had completely affected me and my self-confidence when it comes to being a successful businesswoman one day. I know some investors said to never speak about my beauty pageant background because I will never be taken seriously. And I took that you know, to heart. And I stopped actually talking about my beauty pageant achievements, even though it, they meant a lot to me. And, um, and I talked this about the, about this in the book a lot is that I think my background in beauty pageants have actually made me the woman I am today, which I'm very proud of. And it was very 
uh, sad to not be able to speak on that and be proud of it. Uh, so yes, it happened in so many ways. A couple of questions. If someone today made a comment like that to you, a prospective investor or partner, what would you say? Well, I think I would take it as, a, as an opportunity to educate them on one, that's not an appropriate thing to say. Um, and two, I will kind of take back my power and say why I'm not just a pretty face um, and why let's kind of revert back to why I'm here. You know, let's talk about the big business opportunity that I'm here to pitch you. If that's not what you're interested in, then I just walk away and I get up and walk away. But I think I couldn't really... Um, think about all of this when I was sure. back then, I just didn't really sure. have the experience. Sure. Now you said you're very proud of your beauty pageantry experience. And I think some people from the outside might look at beauty pageants and say, you know, God, that's just an objectification of, of women. Why would a woman be proud for having participated in it? But now I'm talking to you from the inside, from your experience. So tell me what it was like being in the beauty pageants. And did you feel objectified? Well, I think before doing beauty pageants, I was on the same wavelength when it comes to, how you know, thinking about beauty pageants as shallow and something that would objectify women because all I had known up until then was, you know, what I saw on TV and it's just a few pretty women walking around on stage in a bikini. Um, and that was all I knew about it. But I think for me, my perspective shifted because I personally experienced the growth and the self-improvement I had gained from a process like that. And what most people don't often see or know about is what it actually takes to get up on that stage and, you know, walk around and let people judge you or be able to answer a, a an onstage question in 30 seconds, be able to sell yourself to judges under two minutes of being interviewed. A lot of that is a very, I would say, I, I call it like a, a boot camp for life. I learned so many of my um, strengths and skills today as a businesswoman from the pageant world. And that includes how to interview, how to sell yourself, how to even um, figure out what your values are, what you would do as a change agent when you win and have a title like that. And, and a title in the beauty pageant world is much more than just wearing a crown and waving at people and taking pretty photos. It's really figuring out what platform are you going to fight for? What are, um, what are the different events or charity work that you can be a part of? How, can you, how do you raise money as well for these charities? How do you continue uh, raising awareness for issues that you care about? How do you show up as a change agent and a role model to the young Young women in your community that look up to you. There's all this other aspect that actually makes the, the bulk of what a title holder is that most media outlets don't show or talk about. And I got to experience it myself. And really, it made me the businesswoman I am today because it's about learn. It's a lesson in branding. It's a lesson in business. It's a lesson in philanthropy. It's a lesson in confidence poise, communication, it's all bundled up into one main experience, and not to mention competition and sisterhood. And I talk a lot about how prior to pageantry, I didn't really experience sisterhood at all in my life. I grew up with a brother, and most of my friends were actually boys growing up. I was a tomboy, I mentioned earlier, and I was afraid of the idea of being surrounded by beautiful, smart women because I was so insecure, and I always thought that would 
automatically mean cattiness and competition and sabotaging each other as opposed to elevating each other. And when I entered my first beauty pageant, I was totally expecting that that's what it would be because we're all competing for one title. Only one woman is going to walk out from that competition with that crown on her head. So automatically that means everyone else is kind of, you know, competing against each other and wants that crown. So we're not necessarily collaborating or helping each other, but it was completely the opposite. Um, so I think that that's not talked about enough. And now that I have experienced it, it's a completely different experience from what I had initially thought about beauty pageants. It's not as shallow as, as they make it look like. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the statistics I read in the Glass Ledge, and I had no idea about this, but it relates directly what we're talking to when it comes to raising money, is that women founders only receive something like two and a half percent, somewhere between two and three percent mm -hmm. of the investment dollars that are distributed in any given year. Two to three percent. Mm -hmm. That's it for women founders. I was totally shocked yeah. by that. I had no idea. And, you know, partially I thought, oh, I'm glad I never knew that. I'm glad I never calculated mm -hmm. that because it might have made me a lot more nervous in talking to investors, but I, I wasn't even aware of it. And what I realized, Iman, and I just want to talk to you about this, is I think this is just me being confessional here for a moment. You know, as someone who's been an out lesbian since I was mm -hmm. 20, 20 years old, I've never really identified with the male gaze. Mm -hmm. Like, it's on me, it's not on me, I have to play to it, I have to not play to it, I have to care about what they're thinking, but I don't care what about their thinking. Like, it's just never been on my radar, it's not part of my world. And in, in hearing your story, I realize in a way I've been insulated from a lot of the uh, challenges that you've had to face. And I wonder if you can just talk about that some, and perhaps if uh, lesbian uh, business founders, in a way, um, are saved some of this pain and struggle. Yeah, and and I think that number that you mentioned, two um, percent. I think it's a lot lower for also, I would say, women in the LGBTQ community, uh, and even just the LGBTQ community as a whole. Um, and that's another kind of issue again is that there is such a big underrepresentation in the startup world of all these amazing, you know, potential founders that are not getting the right resources to potentially become the next unicorn founder. Um, I think there was probably one or two women who, was at, who have ever um, created a unicorn at this point, which is very sad. Um, but again, I think you can be um, a, a multi-billion dollar founder unless you're able to raise multi-millions of dollars. And that's, again, the cycle that we were stuck in. Um, and you're right. I think those numbers, when you look at them, they're so discouraging. And that's exactly what happened to me is that not only was I personally struggling with, with the issue of fundraising as a young woman, but also I saw that that number wasn't, you know, there's, I'm like, there's no hope. Why even try? It's not like other women are doing it. I'm like, okay, I could see, I could see inspiration and I have a lot more chances to do it. But I think when you look at that number, you're like, why even try? Right. And, and instead of continuing to fight for it, you just want to retract and take a different route, which again is going to keep you as a small business or mid-level business. That's never going to scale up to a point of being a multi-million dollar startup. Um, so it's, 
I'm hoping that it's changing, but I don't know how fast and I don't know if it is really changing um, as fast as we need it to, especially that when you look at the numbers in terms of how many women are starting um, businesses these days, it's at a faster rate than men. Somehow we're still getting less funding, even though we're starting more businesses than ever. So Mm-hmm. Now, when you were talking about your own inner investigation, your own process of self-awareness about the glass ledge and your own unconscious self-sabotaging beliefs, you, you started and you also start the book, The Glass Ledge in this place by talking about your relationship to power. And I wonder if you can share some about that. What was your unconscious relationship to power and how has that changed? Yeah. So I, well, up until I started fundraising, I'd never really sat down to explore what is my relationship with power. Um, I think that, and when we fail to define and claim our power, we unknowingly place our worth in the wrong hands. So I was letting other people define it for me, especially people I was meeting with who were, I would say men in power at the time. To me, I'm like, I, I'm powerless in the situation. They could say whatever they want to me and I have no power over it. And that was really kind of my thought process is that this power imbalance here I'm dealing with is not ever going to, you know, the tables are never going to turn to benefit me. I'm always going to be that in that position where here I am with a PowerPoint begging men in power to really take me seriously as opposed to me putting myself in a position where, no, I am... As a competent, intelligent, successful entrepreneur with a great opportunity, and I'm here to present you with it. And I, I didn't think of myself that way. I thought of myself as, oh, I'm desperate for money, and I need money. I need these men in power to side with me in order for me to create a business that actually helps women. And that's the irony is that I was pitching a business that was fighting for women's voices. And instead, the, the meetings I was walking to, what they con- continually kind of did was prove the the reason why I'm doing what I do is because of those situations, because more women need that kind of support to really raise their voices and feel credible in these kind of meetings. So up until then, again, like I said, I didn't have much um, notion of what power is or wasn't to me. I also saw it as more of a negative thing. You know, I'm, I don't want to be seen as a power hungry woman. I also don't want to show up as um, an act like a man in order for me to feel powerful. I had kind of all these mixed signals in my head about how to show up as a powerful woman and also how to embrace inner power for me and and how to embrace my self-worth in order for me to be able to manifest that power I was seeking. And the power I was seeking was mostly for really being able to accomplish something that can benefit all of the women. It wasn't for me to, um, you know, feel on top of the world, or it wasn't for me to make more money. It, I, it, I wasn't pursuing that type of power. The power I was pursuing is more of a collective power that can help all women rise together. And would you say you feel comfortable at this point claiming your power? Uh, Yes, for the most part. But I will also say that it's an ongoing work, um, you know, self-work thing. You you don't just all of a sudden become comfortable with it and then 
it just stays that way forever. I think I constantly have to also check in with myself. And again, I, I'm back on the fundraising trail again. Now I'm, I'm giving fundraising another shot after I re- wrote the book, after I reflected for a few years, after taking a break from, you know, all of that and really rediscovering myself and, and showing up differently. Now, before every investor meeting, I constantly repeat affirmations that make me feel powerful. I also constantly remind myself that this is an amazing opportunity I'm pitching to investors and that there is no such thing as power imbalance and I'm not already anticipating it before I even go to to the meeting. I'm also very much assertive in the meeting too. I don't let them lead. I, I take control back and lead the way. I have kind of strategies in place in terms of my pitch, my talking points, and even who's in the room and who's not in the room um, to be able to really feel like when I, before I even walk into my meeting, before I even walk into a situation, I already feel in control, which was never the case early on in my journey. I kind of winked it and it was okay. You know, that's how I did most of things in my life and it worked out. But now I think being prepared and repeating to yourself affirmations that make you feel more in control and powerful in your own skin is can seem a little cheesy, but I think it goes a long way in terms of feeling, um, you know, feeling like you can embrace that power before you even walk into a situation that may potentially turn into a power imbalance situation. Can you share with me one of the affirmations that works for you? I say I am secure in who I am. And I deserve to be in this room um, because I think for me, I always thought, um, you know, I struggled with imposter syndrome. And that's something probably that came from my immigrant, my, my immigrant mentality is that I'm not good enough to be here. How, who am I to be in the same room as the, these high profile CEOs who have made fortune? You know, I'm not that accomplished. So I make sure that I say that to myself. I am worthy of my success. And I, I do deserve to be in this room. I am secure in myself, in my own skin. I am secure with my own power. I have a great opportunity that many people can benefit from. And, you know, just repeating that to myself has completely helped me switch that perspective, that flawed perspective I had of myself before walking into meetings. Mm-hmm. Now, Iman, uh, at Sounds True, we have a program. It's called the Inner MBA, and it's a nine-month virtual learning program, online immersion learning program, training people in the inner skills they need to be successful at work. And in hosting this program now for two years, one of the things that I found is that many of the women in the program confess that they have a challenge speaking up. They have a challenge speaking out, that they end up keeping their mouths quiet at work, even though they have important and valuable things to say. And I wonder from your work at Sway, what you've learned about how to help women have the courage and confidence to speak up more. Right. And um, I have definitely experienced that with a lot of the women that we coach and meet with that are on the platform. Uh, Many of them are first time writers or I would say thought leaders, but who are trying to be more vocal and speak up more about their stories, about the issues they care most about, about their experiences, whether they're positive or negative. 
and they want to do it too in a way that's not playing the victim or complaining, but rather educational in a way to also pay it forward and be an inspiration to other women who might be in similar situations. But the first thing I ask them is why haven't you, you know, written about your story before or haven't, why haven't you told this story before or why haven't you contributed some articles or blogged about this issue that you care so much about? And the first thing they say is, well, there are so many people out there speaking on it. Why does my voice matter? Or I don't know that my story really is that great for me to share. You know, like I'm not that accomplished. or I'm not. So right away, you're seeing that they're discounting themselves before they even give it a shot. And so it's like a condition. That's, that's a very self-sabotaging thing to do is before I even go out there, I'm going to tell myself that I don't matter, that my story isn't great, that it's not worth of being shared, um, that my voice isn't incredible, things like that, that you tell yourself that hold you back from doing things that could potentially be life-changing. And I was, of course, one of them, but also I think I didn't have much of a choice. When I did win the title of Miss New York US, I was forced to be you know, an advocate and be more vocal because of the platform that I had for myself, which is women's empowerment, especially women's entrepreneurship. And I had forced myself to create a podcast and be comfortable with being uncomfortable about speaking up. Um, so it's not an overnight, you know, thing that you're just going to be comfortable with it and speak up. I, you have to constantly push yourself to do something that's different and that you have to tell yourself that your story matters. It's that simple. Your story matters. You have a purpose of some sort. And what's the worst that can happen? What if it all works out for you? What, why don't you kind of take the, affirma the negative affirmation or negative things you tell yourself and turn them into positive affirmations? So instead of saying, my story doesn't matter, say, my story matters. Or why would people listen to me? Or people should listen to me. So small tricks like that, that would start getting you more and more comfortable in your head first with being okay with speaking up and you know the first time you're going to do it is going to feel maybe very cringy for you or very uncomfortable but that's the whole point is that pushing yourself outside the comfort zone is the way to change your ways and it's the way to change your life now iman in the book the glass ledge you offer 10 different types of limiting beliefs we could say categories of limiting beliefs that hold women back which of these would you say of the 10 has been the hardest for you to really bring into consciousness and make changes around? I would say likability. Uh-huh. I yeah, and I and I was very um very also shocked to think that actually before I even wrote the book, I had never really realized how much I struggle with um just the likability syndrome because I mean, I, wanting, wanting people to like you being yes. a people pleaser. Yeah. Yes. And then, and the, yes, exactly. So, and for me, it was always the extreme. I either seek to be liked way too much. And that was at the forefront of my decisions um, or lack thereof. And, or I would say, whatever, screw this. I go the opposite side and I just become unlikable completely. And there was no balance in terms of being liked and respected, but also not letting that to affect your, 
you know, your life and your decisions and, and the things that you want to do and your career. So, and I think maybe that also played into initially when I first hired my initial team, uh, because I don't have experience in the media world and I had to, I had to bring in experts, people who had a lot of experience in, in, you know, running media companies or great editors from older, from other media companies that are successful. And I just felt like my leadership was driven by the need to be liked, which was not really fruitful for the company or productive at all for our bottom line. And so without really realizing it, I was trying to become their friend as opposed to their leader, as opposed to someone who can lead them in the right direction to benefit the company, to benefit the shareholders, to benefit them and, and help them grow as, as you know employees and as, as people as well. I was constantly trying to be you know, showing up in ways that made me likable as opposed to respected. Uh, and it started showing up in the way they treated me in meetings. And also in, when I demanded things to be done, they weren't done. They, they got too comfortable with me as a friend as opposed to uh, treating me like the leader I was supposed to be. But again, I, it was my fault. And I never really saw it that way at first. I blamed them for it. And I, I became a little bit more, not aggressive, but, you know, defensive in every meeting. Um, I started retracting back. So it just wasn't an un, a healthy way to lead at all. And again, this was early on in my journey of being a boss. Up until then, I never really had a company. I never hired people. So I didn't know how to show up. But that's, again, why I took a step back and figured out what is the kind of leader I want to be um, and what are the different themes I need to master before I'm able to be that successful leader? And likability was probably my least mm -hmm. favorite one. <laughs> well, well, I noticed in uh, reading The Glass Ledge when I got to number eight competition, that really got my attention. And especially the way that you wrote about it, that it's possible instead of seeing competition as a kind of as a bad thing, especially for women, you know, should be competitive, uh, that there would be a way to, in your words, compete in the right way. And maybe this is something you learned from your beauty pageantry time. But tell me a little bit about what that means to you, healthy competition or competing in the right way. Yes. Yeah, so I think when I started running Sway as a women empowerment platform, and especially with a message that you know, we're all as women have to support each other and collaborate with each other, which is also at the at the height of the, the women's movement. I think people, especially women around me, myself, we started retracting back from embracing competition as a way to grow. It was almost like looked down upon if I felt a little bit competitive with my fellow female founders who were in the same, you know, industry or the same kind of career path. It was almost like you can't compete with women, which is not, which I don't think is the right mindset here. I think there is a way to be able to compete in a healthy way while also supporting other women and also being collaborative, you know, and, and, and rising all together. Just because we're in an era where it's all about women supporting women, it doesn't mean that you, you can't you don't want to compete anymore because competition for me has always been a way to self-improvement. And like you said, you were right. Um, I think I was able to really understand that better when I competed in pageants because that was when I first experienced 
true sisterhood and true a true collaborative environment but also we were competing at the end of the day we all wanted to be better not better than each other but better than who we were yesterday and show up in a much better light uh, and be okay with that so i wanted to really talk about that in the chapter because i've seen many women kind of completely choose to not compete at all um, or also to maybe choose to not be open about it. They, you feel ashamed to say, oh, this woman raised more money than me. That motivates me to go back and raise more money. It doesn't, it's not me taking away from her success. If anything, it shows me that it's possible and it's healthy for me to want to compete with her because I'm only going to be better than what I was yesterday and I could use that competition as a way forward. Mm -hmm. And now just finally, Iman, The Glass Ledge, is a, it's a beautiful book about how we can each take responsibility for ourselves so that we are leading with healthy competition, confidence, our authenticity, we're owning our own power, etc., regardless of the environment that we're in, even in these difficult and toxic work environments, we can take that kind of ownership. So you've done a beautiful job in writing The Glass Ledge. My question is, if you were to take a moment and envision a cultural context in which there wasn't a glass ledge, where there wasn't a glass ceiling for women, what would that be like? Can you, can you envision that, what that would be like? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I would. I think what what that would look like is just showing up, all of us being able to show up with self-assurance and feeling some sense of control and autonomy over our career path. And, and from a cultural perspective, that would mean, you know, the media not pinning us against each other or the media not kind of spreading this mentality that, we need to look a certain way to be successful, or we need to be a certain way to be successful or be seen as successful. Uh, so really stripping away that outside uh, cultural, societal, preconceived like expectations of what, what womanhood is and letting us define it for ourselves. I've been speaking with Iman Ubu, She's the founder and CEO of Sway.com and the author of the new Sounds True book, The Glass Ledge, How to Break Through Self-Sabotage, Embrace Your Power, and Create Your Success. Iman, uh, wonderful to talk to you and best of luck with Sway. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at SoundsTrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world.